this time of worship, uh, that we've been able to come before your presence freely because of your grace and sing praises to you and hear stories of how you're working in the lives of your people through Tiffany Ashley. Lord, we know that you're working in all of our lives even when we don't see it. And so we pray tonight that we would, uh, Lord, come to see that you are the God who brings joy, who delivers joy because you are joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we close our series entitled God Is, and the question I want to ask you is, have you enjoyed this series? I want to do it again. Have you enjoyed this series? We're a two-time church, you know, as you saw earlier in the service, we always have to do that. Um, We're closing out this series. I I think it's been such an encouraging series, Uh, one, because we get to hear stories every single week in the story of, in this series of what God is doing in the lives of Uh, the people of this church, which is so encouraging. But it's also been challenging for me personally. It's been uh, a a kind of refining series to to grow and to refine my faith. And I've got to hear the stories from you all of what God has been teaching you. So it really has been a great series. But we have another series starting next week. We always have a series. And next week we are in calling the series that's going to go all the way to Easter, Losing Our Religion. Not to be confused with the R.E.M. song, Losing My Religion. This is losing our religion because it's a corporate matter. We could call it Losing My Religion, but we wanted to discuss what it means to be the people of God who engage and worship a God who is. And so we want to transition from looking at the character of God to saying, how do we engage as people uh, in relationship with God? How do we worship him? How do we live a life following him? And we're going to be going through the book of Galatians, uh, chapter by chapter, from next Sunday all the way till Easter. And spoiler alert, it's not through being more religious, um, hence the title. But without further ado, I want to jump in tonight to close our series with God is Joy. I want to begin with a quote by a man named Billy Sunday. What a name. That's an incredible name. Billy Sunday, classic. He was an American baseball player and an influential evangelist. And here's what he said If you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Does that resonate? <laughs> if you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. You know, I think what happens in our life is that when we have moments and times where we feel joy leaking out, and we feel as if uh, the situations and circumstances in our life have changed, maybe we were happy and positive and we had good vibes and everything was going well, and then there was a relationship dynamic that came into the midst that we weren't expecting or a situation arise at work or something takes place that feels as if it's poked a hole in our happiness and our joy and it begins to leak out, oftentimes our response is not to check our faith, right? Our response is not to well, let me see what I'm believing about who I am and who God is. Instead, our kind of modus operandi is to just figure out how to fix the situation. We don't really take the hard effort to analyze uh, our faith and our life and what is causing the leak in our joy. Instead, we just begin to say, I need to find something else that's going to make me feel good. Right? Because this is what we hear. How, how many of you have heard this? Listen, if you want to live a good, fulfilling, successful, happy life, just do what makes you feel good. Everyone lives by that mantra in our culture. Just do what makes you feel good, which is essentially saying live a life settling for dopamine. 
Dopamine is the chemical release in your brain that causes pleasure and makes you feel good. It's like, listen, just don't worry about analyzing your life. You know, when like things go wrong and there's a leak in your joy and your happiness is affected and you feel that emptiness at times in your life and, and you don't really know how to patch it up, don't really try to analyze your faith or who God is or who you are or your spirituality. Whatever it may be, don't take that effort. Just do what makes you feel good. Just settle for dopamine, which is essentially saying just live a life where you're completely content microwaving your happiness over and over and over and over again. Right? This is how we, this is the pattern that we live so often in our lives where we say, okay, I've found something that I believe is pleasurable, something that I value, and I'm just going to put it in the microwave. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to hit 30 seconds. It's going to cook. It's going to count down. I've got the three beeps. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to consume it. Everything's going to be great. I'm going to be happy throughout this entire process. But then when I'm done consuming that thing that I value, that's pleasurable, and it runs out or I become tired of it, now... I just go back to the pantry and find something different. It's going to find a different thing to cook and to consume. It's going to microwave something else instead of taking the effort to really analyze what's causing the leak in your joy. It's the pattern that we all fall into. I know I fall into that. And tonight in our passage in John chapter 2, God's word is going to challenge us to analyze and to not settle for microwaved happiness, but instead to find deep joy that is available regardless of the circumstances of your life. So we're going to jump into our passage here in the very beginning in John chapter 2, verse 1. Read along with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So this is the second chapter in the Gospel of John. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the first three are very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're often called the synoptic gospels because they have a very similar point of view. But John's is different. You see, all four gospels have the same message. They have the same events. They have the same truth claims about who Jesus is and his death and his resurrection. But it's different vantage points because there's a different audience that is being addressed. And John's audience in particular is non-Jewish, non-religious pagans. And he starts his gospel in a very different way than all of the others. He doesn't start with a traditional birth story of Bethlehem and Jesus being born in a manger. He doesn't start with any of that. He starts out by saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He speaks about Jesus, as he will say, the word is Jesus. He begins with this kind of you know, imaginative, poetic way, because that word, word means logos, and the non-Jewish uh, pagans, Gr Greeks and Romans, would have understood what that meant, because logos was a thing that they couldn't identify. It was the supreme being or energy that ordered everything together, and John starts his gospel, and he says, that thing that you're searching for, that will bring joy and understanding to your life, that is Jesus. The word has become flesh to dwell among us, and has come to save and to rescue us. It's the very beginning of the first chapter of John, and then he jumps right into Jesus when he's about 30 years old in his public ministry, and he talks about Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And it, it, this is a baptism that is a baptism from a forgiveness of sins. Rather, it is an entrance into his public ministry. It's essentially is saying Jesus is now going to go preach about the kingdom of God and who he is as the Messiah come to save, and it's going to be the three-year journey until he's betrayed and killed and buried and resurrected. 
And at the very end of chapter one, he begins to gather his disciples. Like the first chapter is just like, bam, 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 bam. And then we hit chapter two. Three days later, three days after Jesus has gathered his disciples, he goes to a wedding in Cana. This is a wonderful display of leadership. It's my kind of leadership. Gather people together and go to a party. First thing you do, get the disciples, go to a party. You know, I mean, love it. This is incredibly helpful for you at work. Just take people to parties. That's what Jesus did. He goes to this wedding in Cana, and it's, it's definitely a wedding where people know each other. He was invited. His mother, Mary, was invited. The disciples were invited. So it's pretty much everyone from the region is at this wedding. They know the couple. It's exciting. But then something tragic happens. A big no-no happens at the wedding, which is they run out of wine. That's what it says in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, said to Jesus, they have no wine. So at this point, not everybody knows that the wine has run out, but Mary has kind of gathered this information. She maybe hears some of the people working the wedding talking like, hey, we're out of wine. And so then Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, um, it's going to be a big deal here in a moment, but they have no more wine. And you may be thinking, okay, I mean, how long's the wedding been going on? Is it really that big of a deal? This would have been a huge deal. This would have brought a great amount of shame on the bride and the bridegroom because they would have kind of received the judgment of everybody at the wedding, essentially to say, you didn't prepare for us? Like, you didn't know how to plan a party? You, you, you ran out of wine? Obviously, you didn't take the celebration serious. You didn't take us seriously. It's as if you were at a wedding and you went to the ceremony and it was beautiful and you went to the reception after and everything looked great and you're so excited. You're going to dance. You're going to have a good time. You get in the buffet line and the only thing left is a decorative lettuce. And you're like, what's your first thought? These people, this bride and bridegroom are horrible at planning weddings and I'm supposed to be expected to stay now. There's no way I'm going to stay. I'm starving. And you're casting judgment on the couple that is hosting this wedding. It would have been that, but even more as they've run out of wine. And so Mary informs Jesus of this situation. Now, a lot of people read this and they think that Mary's kind of like commanding Jesus. Like, Jesus, have no wine. You're the son of God, the Messiah, and I've known this since you were born. That was miraculous in and of itself. Can you do another miracle here? We need some more wine. I don't actually think that's what Mary is doing. In fact, when you read the original language in the Greek, and even when you just read here, she's simply informing. She's, she's like saying, like kind of like wide-eyed emoji, like, Jesus, there's no wine. Like, this is going to get wild. You know, like, what's going to happen here? And then Jesus responds. He said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this is the verse that jumps off the page, right? You, you're reading this, you're like, wait, a, wait, what? Like, Jesus looks and says, woman. I mean, if, if any man in here to any lady says, hey, woman, immediately, bam, right in the face. <laughs> like, it's not a good idea to say woman, you know, like, got to be very careful, but see, this is part of the problem of translation, right? We're translating from Greek to English. And in the original language, the word woman that's used here is not a disrespectful term. It's actually a term of endearment. 
And we know this as well because later when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks at his mother with compassion, he says what? Woman, behold your son. He's speaking to John, the author of this gospel. You see, he's speaking to his mother not in a disrespectful way, but a gentle way. But then he says, what does this have to do with me? You're like, okay, I'm okay with the woman thing now, but what does this have to do with me? That seems really cold and really callous, as if Jesus is like chilling in a lounge chair at the wedding, and he's got wine. He's like, I got wine. Why does, I don't care if anybody else has wine. I'm chilling. I only need one more glass, and it's right here. What does this have to do with me? But it's not what he's saying. He's not making a cold and callous statement about the situation, but he is making a statement. You see, you got to look at this entire verse together. He says, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my time or my hour has not yet come. What he's speaking about here as Mary informs him of this situation that she believes is a massive dilemma, the shame that's going to be brought upon the couple. Wait till everybody at the wedding finds out that they're out of wine. This is going to really spiral out of control. And Jesus' statement is essentially to say, this is a relatively minor need that can be fixed. Yes, sure, the, the happiness of the couple will be affected because the situation circumstances have changed, but that's the life that we live. Our happiness is constantly affected by circumstances changing. But he says, but my time has not yet come, which is to say, this relatively minor need presented is not of a concern to me because I'm actually here to meet a deeper need. And that time has not come yet. That's going to come later where I'm going to meet the deepest need of the human heart. This is how he responds to Mary in his very first miracle to kind of inform her that he has come to meet a major need, not to really be concerned with meeting the minor need of wine running out at a wedding. And then Mary says to the servants after she hears this, do whatever he tells you. This is a really interesting response because Jesus has not told Mary he's going to do anything. He's just informed Mary and told Mary that this relatively minor need is not of concern to him because he's here for something more meaningful and something deeper. He's going to fill the deepest need of the human heart, not here to help out a wedding circumstance. And then Mary says to the people working the wedding, whatever he says, you go ahead and do that. Obviously, Mary, it seems as if it's been having conversations with the people running the wedding, the servants of the wedding, which is probably how she found out before everybody else that the wine is run out. But you read this and you think, okay, how, how does she kind of know that Jesus is going to do something? Because it feels as if she does. Maybe it's her motherly intuition. That's not the case. It, she certainly doesn't have any kind of supernatural abilities to see in the future of what he's going to do. So why would she respond like this? You see, Mary listens and believes. She listens to Jesus' words. Jesus says that he's here to meet a major need, and a minor need is, is not of a concern to him. And she really absorbs that, and she takes that in. So the panic that she was feeling in the moment, that there's no wine at the wedding, and this dilemma is going to spiral out of control, she begins to relax. Okay, this is not as big of a deal as I thought. But she also believes Jesus, and she trusts him. You see, she has no idea what Jesus is going to do, 
but she believes that Jesus is compassionate and merciful and good. And if Jesus does something, it's going to be good. And if he doesn't do anything, it's going to be good. And so she can tell the servants, hey, whatever he tells you, whether to do nothing or to do something, listen to him. And so immediately after this, it says in verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. These would have been jars where uh, ritual religious kind of cleansing to cleanse your hands and your feet uh, would have been there present for everybody to use. They were each holding 20 or 30 gallons, and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So Jesus does in fact actually take an action here to to kind of meet the need of the moment, but he doesn't just come to fulfill this relatively minor need. He overfills it. I mean, he goes above and beyond. If you want to put this in perspective, Jesus has just roughly created 160 gallons of wine. That's 800 bottles of wine. I mean, he's ready to keep the party going. I mean, this party's been going. The wine's run out. He's like 800 more bottles, you know? 800 bottles of wine. He overfills the need. The reason that he's doing this is he's pointing to a select few of people, the disciples, Mary, the servants. He's pointing them to a much bigger miracle that's going to take place. He's pointing them to a time and a moment and an event where the deepest need of the human heart will be met and it will be overfilled as well. And so he kind of goes above and beyond here to reveal to them and to point to them who he is, his character, and his glory, and what he's going to accomplish as well. And then it says in verse 9, now the master of the feast, he tasted the water, now become wine, and he did not know where it came from. He's totally aloof. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the master of the feast is a wedding coordinator who maybe has kind of caught wind that they're out of wine is thinking, this is my last job. You know, run out of wine. I'm never going to get hired again. What am I going to do? But then the servants come. They bring him some wine that they've just taken from these large stone jars full of water that they filled to the brim and the water has become wine and then the master of the feast tastes this wine and he is shocked because it's the best wine of the night it is fabulous wine and he immediately goes and runs to the bridegroom and he's speaking to the bridegroom and and his bride i imagine is next to him and they've kind of orchestrated the whole wedding and he's not been informed that they're saving the best wine to last but this is so unbelievable that he wants to praise the bridegroom and the bride for what they've done. And he says, listen, this is unbelievable that you guys have saved the best wine till last. Most people wait till everybody's drunk. That's what he says. Most people wait till everybody's drunk. They won't know that they're drinking the poor wine, but you've brought out the best wine at the end. This is extravagant. This is so beyond generous. And then it says in verse 11 that this is done so that people will see the glory of God. So interesting, this miracle that takes place, the very first miracle, Jesus turning water into wine. 
and only a few people know about it. As I said, the disciples who he's just gathered three days earlier, his mother and the servants. I was thinking this week, you know, why would this be the first miracle? Jesus had a wedding, run out of wine, turns, he makes 800 bottles of wine. It's not simply just to say, like, Jesus is pro-wine. That can't be the main reason for the miracle. I think it's because this miracle so clearly points to Jesus' mission and why he's come. It points to what he will accomplish about three years later when he gives his life and he's buried and he comes forth from the grave resurrected to fill the deepest need of the human heart and actually fill the heart with what it desires more than anything, which is joy. So we live our life pursuing joy. We all want joy. Everything we do is for the sake of joy. We seek after love because we believe it will bring us joy. We seek to raise a family because we believe it'll bring us joy. We want success in our life because we believe that will bring us joy. We spend time and invest in developing friendships because we believe it'll bring us joy. We care about our health and we're concerned about our health because we believe that a healthy life will bring us joy. We fall captive to vices and temptations over and over again because we believe they will bring us joy. Our life is pursuing after joy. We're joy seekers, but we're happiness settlers. We settle for happiness instead of seek and find joy. I think the reason we settle for happiness is because a lot of times we're like the master of the feast. We give praise to the wrong person. Notice that. It doesn't take time to say, okay, the bride and the bridegroom never told me that they're going to bring out this incredible wine at the very end. I'm coordinating this entire event. I'm the master of the feast. How did I not know? Where's this wine from? Who brought it? Who should get the credit? Instead, the master of the feast just assumes that he was never brought into the equation. He goes and he praises the wrong people. How many times in life do we praise the wrong people for the things that come, the gifts and the blessings and the things that bring joy? Praise the wrong person. And sometimes we're not only like the master of the feast, we're like the bridegroom. The bridegroom knows he did not purchase this wine. He, he, he was like everybody else. He had the poor wine. In fact, he didn't even have enough wine. He failed at that. But now the master of the feast comes and he says, you are so amazing. How generous, how extravagant that you would save the greatest wine till last. And instead of saying, well, that wasn't me. I have no idea who did this. That's unbelievable. The, master, the bridegroom says, yeah, it was me. <laughs> Sorry. I know it was a surprise, you know, I wanted to bring it out, just wanted to show you how generous and how wonderful I am. Never corrects the master of the feast. How many times in life do we assume the praise for things that we never did? How often do we assume the praise for things that we know Jesus has done for us, that God has done for us? Why? Because we believe that the praise for our reputation and our, the, you know, the boost to our image will bring us joy. So we absorb the praise. We take the praise in instead of deferring the praise to the one who's actually brought about this great event. We take it in and we miss out on joy. You see, joy is actually the reverse of happiness. Happiness is found by experiencing something that is pleasurable or doing and engaging with something that you value. 
See, when you value something and when you find something that brings pleasure, just simply experiencing that will bring you happiness. Happiness is like the leaves on a tree. The leaves on the tree find enjoyment as the sun rises and it beams down its light upon the leaves and as the wind blows and as the rain falls. But what's interesting about the leaves of a tree is that they're completely dependent on the circumstances around it. See, when the sun sets and when the rain ceases and when the wind is still, the leaves are stagnant. They just sit and they wait for the sun to rise again and the rain to fall again and the breeze to blow again. They're completely dependent on what's happening around them to experience enjoyment and to grow. But joy is the reverse of happiness. Joy is not experiencing something pleasurable or engaging in doing something that you value. Rather, it is the receiving of something of infinite value. It is taking something that is of infinite value because joy is like the roots of the tree. It is completely unaffected by the wind and the sun and the rain. Instead, it is constantly, day in and day out, taking the nutrients from the soil, the minerals and the water that is found in the soil. And it receives those nutrients day in and day out, which actually gives life to the tree. You see, a deep root root system will grow a strong tree, and it will provide stability for a tree that can weather the storm. When you have a shallow root system, it's fragile. Too hard of a, a gust of wind can uproot the tree. The Bible is very clear on this. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's a lot of things, but... We're talking about joy tonight, so I wanted you to say joy. (laughs) The fruit of the Spirit is not happiness. never says that. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. See, here's the truth. You may find happiness apart from God. Everybody can find happiness apart from God because happiness is found through experiencing something pleasurable. It's the release of dopamine in your brain. It's the engaging with and doing something that you value, but you will never experience joy apart from God because you cannot receive something of infinite value and joy unless you receive it from an infinite God. Joy is only found in a relationship with God because God is joy. The problem is, though, we seek joy, but we settle for happiness. We settle all the time for microwave happiness. But see, in order to seek and to find joy, as the illustration of the tree goes, you need to begin to take and to absorb and to receive the nutrients in the soil. You need to take those in. And so you need to begin to receive and absorb the the minerals of God's character. See, that's what's in the soil, the minerals of God's character. That's why this series, I think, has been so formative and so important for me personally, and I hope for you as well, as you take time to contemplate and to meditate and to bring clarification in who God is. Who is God? What does it mean that he's faithful and provider and in control and wise and forgiving and loving and joy? 
You see, we are to absorb the minerals of God's character. That is the life of faith. The life of faith is day in and day out seeking to understand and to bring clarity to the character and nature of God. Your destiny, if you believe in the reality of who God is and who Christ is and what he's done, you are told that you are assured a path to eternal life where you will worship God day in and day out. And so if you're walking in that direction to eternal life in relationship with God, don't you think your life should be about getting to know him before you meet him face to face? You take in the minerals of God's character, but there's another essential nutrient that you have to absorb and to receive to find joy, not just taking in God's character and meditating upon it, but also receiving the water of God's purification, being filled with the purifying water that God offers. Did you notice in this story that Jesus takes the water in six stone purification jars, the jars that would you would have used religiously to make yourself clean. Jesus takes that water and he turns it into the greatest wine of the evening. It's very intentional. You see, he's alluding to what he said to Mary very early on. Why would I concern myself with something that's such a relatively minor need when my mission is to fill the deepest need of the human heart? My time has not yet come. And so this entire miracle is pointing us to the ultimate miracle which is his death and his resurrection, where he will open up a pathway to joy, where he will overfill the deepest need of the human heart to find and to receive joy. And you see it here, why? You see, Jesus, three years later, he'll be sitting with his disciples on the night when he's been betrayed, and he's having a Passover meal. And he's going to say that this wine is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. To remember Christ's sacrifice and his bloodshed for what? For your forgiveness. You see, John will say as well later in his letter, the letter of 1 John, that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Jesus here in his very first miracle is pointing to what he will one day accomplish so that those servants and his disciples and his mother will see that his blood shed is the purification for their sins as he symbolizes his blood in wine on the night when he was betrayed and in his very first miracle. It's the greatest wine. It's the greatest thing that you could take in and consume. It is extravagant and generous In fact, Scripture has been revealing this all the way back into the Old Testament. And and David may not have known this, but look how God has made this come full circle. David says in Psalms that wine is the drink that gladdens the heart. You're like, amen. But he means more, and I think God is using this for more than just when you drink wine, it warms you and it brings you happiness in the moment. He says that wine is the drink that gladdens or brings joy to the heart. And what does Jesus speak about wine as the sacrifice and the shedding of his blood for the purification of your sins and mine? So what is it that brings joy to your heart? The sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of his blood, 
the wine that he spilt for you with his own body and, and absorbing that and receiving that and reminding yourself of that day in and day out. So you may be thinking to yourself, I don't, I mean, I, I understand, Carter, that focusing and thinking about the purification that's offered me through Christ's sacrifice and the spilling of his blood would bring me hope for when I die or peace, but joy, how does it bring me joy? You see, it brings you joy because it roots and it establishes you. We spend our lives so much settling for happiness and just running from thing to thing to thing that feels good and just figuring out what we value and chasing after the things that we value. And we repeat that pattern over and over and over again instead of taking time to really analyze why does it feel like our joy is leaking? Why does it feel like there's an emptiness rising up? See, we live like this because really we live like the willow tree. I've studied trees a lot this week. The willow tree is a beautiful tree. It's beautiful, especially when the wind blows the tree. It really enjoys all that is on the surface, the sun and the rain and the wind. But the willow tree has a very shallow root system. In fact, the root system of a willow tree is so focused on what's on the surface that it will grow along the surface up to three times the length of the canopy. Because it tries to not take in the water and the minerals of the soil, but rather it wants to take in the water from rain. Everything about the willow tree is focused on the surface. In fact, it has a very short life expectancy, 30 to 40 years. It's a very invasive tree as it is aggressively pursuing everything that is on the surface. And so it is dependent upon the surface. On the rain to come, the wind to be still, and the sun to shine because a willow tree, when the, way, when the rain comes and the winds really pick up and a storm comes, it is the most common tree to be uprooted and to be bent, to be broken. How often do we live our life like a willow tree, just focusing on all the circumstances of our life, focusing on everything on the surface, how our career is going, how our relationships are going, just focusing on all these things and trying to fix them so that we can be happy and we can find joy. And then we, why, am, why is my joy leaking and why am I feeling empty and not fulfilled? It's because you're focusing on the surface like a willow tree. But we're to be people that are like a white oak tree. See, a white oak tree has a deep root system. It's still beautiful on the surface. And notice, a white oak tree still enjoys everything on the surface as well. It enjoys the sun and the rain and the wind, but it spends a lot of its effort. In fact, the very beginning of an oak tree's life will be focused on developing the root system as it takes a taproot and sends it deep into the soil so that regardless of what happens on the surface, it takes in the minerals of the soil and the water of the soil. And when the storm comes, it will stand strong. It will weather the storm. You see, this is what this passage is pointing us to. This is what Jesus is revealing in his very first miracle. Don't be like the willow tree. Don't focus on the circumstances of your life. These relatively minor needs, like wine running out at a wedding, that can be easily fixed when Jesus has come for so much more. He's come to fill the deepest need of your heart. And the call of the Christian and the call of the person that is seeking after Christ, as Jesus will say time and time again, is to develop your root system 
to drill down deep into the minerals of God's character, to see and to receive and to remind yourself of the purification that Christ offers you through the shedding of his blood, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are God's, that he is for you, that he is faithful and provider and in control and wise and forgiving and all the things that we've looked at, he is that for you regardless of what's happening around you. You see, when you claim that and when you know that and when that is at the depth of your heart, guess what you have? Joy. Joy. Because the character and the glory of God is settled in your heart and the forgiveness and purification offered to you through the sacrifice of Christ is at the base of who you are. And so you can enjoy the good circumstances on the surface, but when they change, and they do, and they will, you still find joy. And you can claim and know something that's a wonderful promise that Christ gives you, which John will say in chapter 16 as he is quoting Jesus. Listen to this and claim this. Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you'll have sorrow now as the storms come. But I will see you again, Jesus says, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You see, your destiny is joy through faith in Christ. And no one will take it from you. And the path that we are to walk now is to know that God is joy. And that can be found by drilling down our taproot to understand and bring clarity to the character and nature of God, to take in the minerals of God's glory and to receive the purification of Jesus' sacrifice that has forgiven you of your sins. Will you pray with me? Lord, we pray that we would be people that trust you, that we would listen and that we would believe as we see with Mary's example, that we would know that whatever you do, it is good. Whatever you bring, whatever circumstances you allow to happen in our life, Lord, as we've learned and as we've studied, you are in control and you are provider and you are faithful. You are wise. You're loving and forgiving. God, in your joy. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts and our minds to focus our attention not on the surface, not on our leaves, but in the root system. Would you begin to bring clarity to who you are? Would we really receive and absorb the forgiveness and purification that you offer? That we might be people of joy. That we might find that you have brought abundance to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.